Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. The New York Times recently summed up one of the biggest climate change stories of the year so far. The planet's average sea surface temperature spiked to a record high in April, and the ocean has remained exceptionally warm ever since, the paper reported. In July, widespread marine heat waves drove temperatures back up to near record highs, with some hot spots nearing 100 degrees Fahrenheit. This is Kurt Rabinchek, your host at the National Parks Traveler. In late July, water temperatures off the southern tip of Florida surpassed 100 degrees Fahrenheit. What are the impacts of this hot water to dry Tortugas, Everglades, and Biscayne National Parks? We're going to explore that question with Dr. Steve Davis, the Chief Science Officer for the Everglades Foundation. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Patero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Welcome back to The Traveler, Steve. Thanks, Kurt. Good to be here. So before we get into some of the impacts, I mean, could you explain how the ocean waters are getting so hot? I mean, you mentioned the Atlantic Ocean and even the Gulf of Mexico, and the mind envisions these enormous bodies of water that one would think would be pretty difficult to heat up so much. Well, it, it really takes years and decades to heat up. Uh, large areas of, of water, whether the Great Lakes, Lake Okeechobee, something significantly smaller, or uh, even a place like the Gulf of Mexico and the coastal waters around Florida. Uh, it takes a while for that water to heat up. It absorbs an enormous amount of energy, but uh, uh, especially with the heat that we've had this summer, um, lack of cloud cover in certain areas, and, and also with a calming of winds that we normally rely upon in the afternoon here in South Florida, uh, those calmer conditions have allowed that water to heat up as well. What would be the normal or what was the normal water temperature in, in the summer in the Gulf of Mexico? Well, of course, it depends on where you are and what, what depth you are. Uh, the Florida Shelf, which extends about 50 miles off Florida's west coast and, uh, uh, you know, down to the Florida Keys and, and where the dry tortugas are, uh, that's a relatively shallow body of water that is quite a bit warmer than the, the deeper open water areas, the Gulf of Mexico. And it's not uncommon for that to get up to the upper 80s uh, in, in the height of, of summer. Uh, but as you mentioned, we, we've seen some nearshore temperatures, uh, especially in the shallower zones, 
and especially for waters that don't flush very well in places like Florida Bay and Lower Biscayne Bay have exceeded, uh, in some cases, uh, what we're measuring in the atmosphere. Th those waters just sit and heat up from day to day to day. Wow. And I imagine it takes an equally long or maybe longer period of time for them to cool down. It does. And, and this year has been uh, as hot as it's been. It's a little bit hotter than than what we've seen previously. And I think back to 2015, when we had a seagrass die-off in Florida Bay, uh, we saw temperatures well in excess of 93, 94 degrees, and even had a, a recorded temperature of 100 in an area that suffered seagrass die-off that year. Uh, we're seeing the same kind of temperatures this year. So it's not you know, that extraordinary. The, the problem is this year, it seems to be a longer duration. And we know that in, again, Florida Bay, Everglades National Park, uh, as, a, as an important point of reference, um, it's such a shallow system that the, the bay temperatures roughly track the temperatures in the atmosphere. So as the air starts to cool down, we'll see the bay cool down. And, and so we're obviously looking forward to that as we head into late summer and, and into the fall. Yeah, yeah. Now, these 100 degree, 100 degree plus um, readings, are they right along the, the shoreline or do they extend out quite a bit into the bay? They do sort of hug the shoreline. And uh, one area in, in particular, Garfield Bight, which is an area roughly 10 to 12 miles. Uh, to the east of Flamingo. So for folks that have been to Everglades National Park, you drive that main park road down to the very end, you end up in Flamingo. And so uh, it's it's an area that hugs the shoreline and it's an area that doesn't flush very well with the tides. Uh, so it's it's kind of confined and isolated and is vulnerable to that extreme heating. It's also vulnerable to uh, variations in freshwater flow. We know that in 2015, that area, uh, not only was it incredibly hot, uh, but the salinity levels were about double that of ocean water. And that kind of speaks to the vulnerability of that area and how um, poorly it flushes with the tides. So the water just sits there, it evaporates and becomes very salty. But it also absorbs uh, an enormous amount of heat. Right, right. Now, you know, the, the, the shape of Florida with that uh, long stretch down south, I mean, kind of is the eastern edge of the, the Gulf of Mexico. Are you seeing warming temperatures on the east coast of Florida, similar temperature in the water? Yeah, we're, uh, we're seeing similar extreme heat in areas of Biscayne Bay that, again, don't flush very well with the tides. So, uh, areas where you have a lot of mixing and circulation, the temperatures don't get that high. It's it's the water that sits there and basically stews day after day. And so upper Biscayne Bay, lower Biscayne Bay, those areas don't flush well. And so uh, we're seeing upper 90s in those areas as well. And I, I think it's important to note that it's it's not so much the daytime highs that are a concern. It's It's the nighttime lows that are a concern. And 
um, I'll, I'll speak to that, but we're seeing nighttime temperatures in some days not dipping below 90 degrees. So it really does not cool off sufficiently, which certainly has an impact on the physiology of the organisms in the water. Uh, but most importantly, it affects the ability of that water to hold oxygen overnight when everything uh, living is depending on that oxygen to get through the night before photosynthesis kicks in the next day. Wow. You know, one of the, the most publicized impacts of this ocean warming, at least that I've heard of, is, is coral bleaching. Um, could you explain the process of coral bleaching and what, what happens to, to make the corals go white? Does it does it take a great rise in temperature to occur? Well, I'm I'm truly not an expert in in coral biology. What, what I do know is that as temperatures get above a certain threshold, it causes the organisms that sort of make the the coral skeleton to become stressed and ultimately uh, eject from that that reef body, uh, and and therefore leads to the bleaching of that coral, but uh, I, I'm I'm I don't consider myself an expert on corals, so I feel uncomfortable speaking to that. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, I'm certainly no expert. That's for sure. I, I I like to scuba and snorkel around coral reefs and and admire the the colorful reefs. And you know that's one of the threats that we're losing. And it's not just um, loss of biodiversity in the oceans, but obviously you know tourism dollars with all the the divers and uh, the reef fishers which we're going to get into, um, there have been many stories about efforts to save corals by creating nurseries with fragments. I've heard that uh, many of these projects have been pretty successful, but also believe that uh, some have been damaged by the warm water, some of these nurseries. They would be equally vulnerable because many of the quote-unquote gardens where they're growing coral fragments uh, are in these same waters and uh, growing under that extreme heat. And so in some of these areas, they've actually gone out and tried to harvest some of those coral fragments to take them back to the lab in a more controlled setting to get them through some of this extreme heat. Um, but it, it's, you know, it, anything that we're uh, concerned about in our coastal waters would be affected by this heat to the same degree. And again, it, it, it has to do with the, the organism's ability to physiologically tolerate that heat, but also their demand for oxygen uh, under those warmer water conditions and recognizing the physical constraints of that water to hold oxygen as it gets warmer. It's sort of the, the tipping point for uh, really the health of a lot of things, whether it's coral, whether it's seagrasses, you know, oysters in more nearshore areas, sponges, we're seeing impacts to all of these ecosystems as the water's heated up. Wow, that's incredible. This is Kurt Rappencheck. We're talking today with Dr. Steve Davis, the Chief Science Officer for the Everglades Foundation, about climate change and how it's warming seawaters and the, the problems and impacts that is creating for national parks and organisms in the waters surrounding the national parks. We'll be back in a minute. National Parks Traveler has launched the National Parks RVing Guide the definitive guide for RVers seeking information on campgrounds in the national park system. The guide is now available free through the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. 
If you're a traveler who wants to explore the national park system, you'll want this app. The guide is packed with RVing specific details for campgrounds in more than 70 national parks across the country. Search by park, state, or region of the country, and you'll find information about campgrounds that can handle big rigs, those with showers and dump stations, ADA accessible sites, and more. You'll find stories about RVing in the parks, tips for new RVers, as well as feeds of the traveler's content. Our latest stories and recent podcasts are just a tap away. Download the National Parks RVing Guide and start planning your next trip today. Maximize your savings with Interior FCU. Explore the benefits of opening multiple certificates to diversify your savings strategy. Discover how Interior FCU's range of certificate options can help you achieve your financial goals with competitive rates and flexible terms. Learn more at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. You know, Steve, the Florida Reef stretches 350 miles roughly from Dry Tortugas National Park, um, far to the south of uh, Key West, up to uh, Martin County, I believe, on the east coast of Florida. That has a lot of exposure to these ocean temperatures. Any um, insights into how that that reef is uh, faring under these temperatures? Well, it's a massive reef system, as you point out, the third largest reef system in the world. And it's connected uh, from the Dry Tortugas, as you mentioned, all the way up to Martin County with the, the, the Florida Straits, that current of water that flows out of the Gulf uh, Stream and all the way up our, our East Coast. So they're all... <laughs> whether you're in the lower keys, the middle keys, or all the way up the, the lower East Coast, they're experiencing the same uh, water quality conditions for the most part um, in terms of temperature. Uh, there are some areas where there might be more nutrient related problems, but in terms of temperature, they're experiencing those same issues. And of course that current that carries that same water out of the Gulf is also carrying uh, larval forms of organisms that um, settle in many of these reef areas and depend on the quality of water and the quality of that reef for them to be able to grow up into adults. Some of these are recreationally important species. So uh, it's it's all experiencing the same conditions from top to bottom. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, you mentioned, I believe it was back in 2015, maybe that you saw similar ocean water temperatures, but for a shorter duration. Were there any 
obvious impacts to the reef from, from those temperatures, do you recall? Well, the the impacts that were observed on the reef were in part related to the problems that we saw take place in Florida Bay. And again, that's uh, uh, about an 800 square mile estuary in Everglades National Park, just sandwiched between the Florida Keys and the mainland. And we saw similar temperatures uh, developing in Florida Bay at that time. But the problem then was more related to extreme high salinities that uh, developed in the central part of the bay because of a lack of freshwater flow. So uh, that seagrass die-off that ensued not only led to algae blooms, but that hypersaline water uh, was carried out of the bay through the Florida Keys and, and impacted the reef in that way. So the, the reef then was exposed to extremely salty, and because it's excessively salty, it's dense, and that water holds an enormous amount of heat. So that hot, salty water got transmitted offshore into some areas of the Middle Keys reef tract. And uh, I didn't see uh, significant documentation of impact, but we know that uh, that super salty hot water uh, had an impact locally. Yeah, I recall the, the seagrass die-off in, in the bay. I don't um, recall any great uh, mention of coral bleaching um, from that. No, no, and and uh, certainly not to the extent because the, the duration of those high temperatures was such that it didn't affect the offshore water temperatures as much as it did the nearshore temperatures in Florida Bay. But I, I'll also add that that seagrass die-off led to several years of algae blooms in Florida Bay. So without that grass there to stabilize the bottom, to, to take up nutrients, um, it led to algae blooms that there were several uh, well-publicized satellite images showing this green plume of water uh, getting carried offshore into the reef tract. Now, you know, when coral bleaching occurs, um, the corals, as I understand it, are, are, are losing the colonies of life, so to speak, that inhabit them. That has to have a downstream impact, so to speak, by, by the reef fishes that depend on the coral reefs. Everything from the smallest of, of fish and the grazers up to the, the predatory, you know, more recreationally sought after species. Uh, so it has a, a, a cascading effect throughout the food web. And, um, you know, we associate our reefs with being incredibly diverse, incredibly productive, but that starts with the health of the coral itself uh, and, and the connection to healthy ecosystems like seagrasses and mangroves. So as those dominoes start to fall, you see the cascading effect throughout the food web. Yeah, yeah, because Florida Bay, I mean, is a, a a very important nursery, so to speak, for reef fishes and shellfish and whatnot. Incredibly so, and I, I mentioned the, the larval fish transport, and the studies show very clearly that these larvae get transported along the keys, and the small eddy currents that spin off of that uh, force these microscopic fish into seagrasses into mangroves. And so it's the communication, the connections between those habitats that really 
boost their productivity overall. Uh, and again, as one of those systems starts to break down, that connection uh, and the, the overall productivity starts to break down. Are we seeing um, stagnation in the Florida Bay to go along with these really, really warm water temperatures? Well, there are some areas that are vulnerable to stagnation naturally because uh, Florida Bay is not like an open bay system like the Chesapeake. It's it's actually more like an ice cube tray where you have a series of basins that are intermittently connected to one another, either through wind events or high freshwater inflow events from the Everglades, uh, hurricanes, but generally the water in each of the basins across that ice cube tray are isolated from one another to some extent. And it promotes uh, the, the evaporation, the salt concentration when we're not getting enough fresh water flow or during uh, really hot periods like we've experienced over the past month and a half, it allows for these basins, some of them that don't exchange with tides or fresh water to heat up extraordinarily. And, and that's what we're seeing. So those areas are naturally vulnerable, but having said all that, it's, it's fortunate that we're seeing the benefits of Everglades restoration playing out because we don't see the excess salinity across some of these areas that we've seen in the past that led to seagrass drop. The temperature is there. It's just that the salinity is not to that critical level that would lead to a massive seagrass die off. Yeah, and that's due to the inflows coming down the river of grass? Because of the, the bridges that have been built on Tamiami Trail, some of the other infrastructure that helps to keep that water in the park, send it all the way down to Florida Bay. We're, we're absolutely seeing the benefits of that right now, but uh, it, it really now depends on how long we're going to see this extreme heat as to the health of, of that ecosystem uh, beyond the summer. Yeah. Is there any forecast for how long it'll uh, continue? I, I've heard that August is going to be equally warm. Um, but at the same time, our August is in, in South Florida is generally the wettest month of the year, certainly wetter than July. July is traditionally quite dry. And I don't understand what, what drives all that. But uh, if, if August is an average wet August, we're going to have more cloud cover. We're going to have more rainfall. And we're going to have more wind that all of the above will help to lower the temperatures from what we saw in July. So even if the air temperature is equally warm, I think uh, we're going to see conditions subside. Uh, some of these extreme heat conditions subside around our coastline. Yeah. Now, Central Florida, did, did it receive a, a significant amount of rainfall during July? Were there a couple of big storms that moved through and um, led to some greater releases from Lake Okeechobee? No, we have not seen a significant discharge this year, uh, even though the lake is still quite high. And uh, as a carryover from Hurricane Ian last year that devastated our southwest coast, uh, we had record rainfall north of Lake Okeechobee. The lake shot up four feet in uh, elevation, and there was concern through the dry season because we couldn't send large volumes south that, that we would have to see 
massive discharge of polluted Lake Okeechobee water to our east and west coast. We haven't seen that yet. Uh, and I think in part it's because July was quite dry. And uh, um, so we're, we're watching that very closely. And, and really, that's one of the major motivations for Everglades restoration is to help us control lake levels better and send more of that water south. And we know it's polluted, so we've got to have the storage capacity and the treatment capacity to send those volumes south so that we're not dumping it to our east and west coast. So uh, we're making great progress there. And um, the key to that is the, the big Everglades Agricultural Area Storage Reservoir that's now under construction and is slated to be completed by 2030. So we're watching that, but we're also um, you know, watching lake levels from day to day to in hopes that we don't have to see those polluted discharges because that's really adding insult to injury. When you've got these incredibly, extremely hot conditions in the estuaries and our coastal waters and to, to dump polluted water on top of that would really make things worse. Yeah. Well, what's the, the cause of the pollution in the lake waters? Is it, is it uh, agricultural runoff? It's, it's largely agricultural. Um, three quarters of our pollution around the Everglades comes from agricultural pollution and in part has to do with the uh, attempts to straighten the meandering Kissimmee River into a canal and draining the floodplain and farming that floodplain and, uh, and then to the south draining that Everglades agricultural area that's now primarily farmed as sugarcane. Uh, the contributions from the north and south led to the pollution of Lake Okeechobee because they used to back pump water from the south back into the lake. So uh, that, that pollution has really impaired the lake to the point where now every summer we're seeing toxic blue-green algae form on the lake. And uh, not too long ago, more than 75% of that 700 square mile Lake Okeechobee was covered in toxic blue-green algae. And that's subsiding a bit, but the concern is when those gates open to the east and west, it's not only carrying uh, enormous volumes of polluted freshwater, but it's carrying those toxins along with it. Wow. This is Kurt Repencheck with National Parks Traveler. We're talking today with Dr. Steve Davis, the chief science officer from the Everglades Foundation, about climate change and hotter ocean water temperatures around Florida. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. 
It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. So, Steve, as we were talking earlier uh, about the, the warm ocean waters and the, the Florida reef extending all the way down to Dry Tortugas National Park, which is roughly, I want to say, 70 miles south of uh, Key West, is Dry Tortugas seeing the same water temperatures as you are closer to the to, to Florida Bay and Everglades National Park? Not as hot, but probably as extreme relative to the long-term conditions that it's that those. Uh, patch reefs and seagrasses around the Tortugas are accustomed to seeing. Uh, so I, I think relatively speaking, yes, as extreme. Wow. Are we seeing any obvious um, impacts to marine life, fish kills, or uh, I don't know what else would come with it, but. Well, the, 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 the coral bleaching, uh, the documentation of that um, has, has been pretty eye-opening. Um, what we're seeing in places like Florida Bay, uh, sponge die off, large sponges dying back, uh, seagrass die off, patchy, not large scale, but some patchy seagrass die off. Uh, we're witnessing that. Fish kills in different areas of our uh, really hot near shore coastal waters. We're certainly seeing the impacts of that. Um, and, and, you know, I communicate regularly with fishing guides that are out on the water. Uh, they send me pictures of things, and I've spent a little bit of time out there myself. And just, you know, you, you really get the sense that things are on the edge and and just holding on, trying to get through. And um, it it really speaks to how fragile nature is. And and when we throw these types of extreme conditions at our environments, whether it's extreme heat or nutrient loading or things that that you know lead to algae blooms or lack of freshwater flow uh it it really not only stresses them but it it sets back their condition to the point where they don't fully recover in many cases so i think some of these impacts are yet to play out uh, with regard to uh, larval fish production and growth into a size class that we can observe, we may not know the impacts of that for another year or two. Uh, we don't know how much of the reef will recover. That will take some time. So the impacts we're seeing are, are still sort of playing out uh, and are yet to be documented. Yeah. I mean, nature can also be very resilient and, and adaptive. You know, you, every now and then there's a story that pops up about, you know, this section of coral seems to be uh, immune from the the higher water temperatures or has figured out how to cope with it. Um, so you always, you know, have to hold out some hope for that type of scenario arising. Yeah. And, and we do see an enormous amount of resilience here uh, across our ecosystems in South Florida. Uh, in some years, we We've had rainfall in just the right amount at the right time, and that's led to uh, record-breaking wading bird nesting. Right, um, wading birds are among our most iconic species, along with the American alligator and the Florida panther. And uh, we see that if we can get the water right, the species will respond. We've also seen that those estuaries on our east and west coast that get pummeled with 
polluted Lake Okeechobee discharge uh, because we don't have the capacity to send that south. And if we go a couple of years without those discharges, we start to see habitat recovery. The seagrasses come back, the oysters come back in those uh, bays and estuaries. So the resilience is there. It's just a matter of, of getting the conditions as close to ideal as possible. And again, that's largely what Everglades restoration is about, at least for our inshore and, and freshwater ecosystems. Yeah. Now, Biscayne National Park, 95% of it is underwater. So what, what is happening to that park with these high water temperatures? Well, it's, it's equally vulnerable. And, and some of the hottest temperatures we've seen have been in southern Biscayne Bay. And, uh, you know, the Everglades historically was connected to Biscayne Bay, not only through periodic surface water connections, but also through groundwater. Uh, with that massive volume of water sitting on the South Florida Peninsula and our porous geology, there was a lot of groundwater discharge, uh, fresh groundwater discharge into Biscayne Bay. And uh, one of the goals of Everglades restoration, and there's actually a project that's being planned right now as part of Everglades restoration called the Biscayne Bay Southeast Everglades Ecosystem Restoration. It's a mouthful of a project, but one of the objectives of that project is to improve nearshore salinities, which means we're spreading out freshwater flows into Biscayne Bay as opposed to just dumping it out a canal. And if you've been out into some of these areas when the canals are releasing and thinking about the heat that we're experiencing right now, uh, those canal release points that's cooler water coming off the land or coming out of the groundwater into some of those nearshore zones that are experiencing extreme heat right now. And so spreading out that freshwater flow will certainly help to mitigate some of these types of temperature related impacts that as of right now, we don't have the capacity to do. Yeah, it's probably too early. I would, I would guess to say that, uh, uh, Biscayne is is really endangered because of these hot waters and and what they're doing to the the marine life and the the coral structures. Similarly, uh, we have concerns about the the reef that's just outside uh, of Biscayne Bay, uh, but also the patchy coral heads and also seagrasses that cover much of Biscayne Bay. Uh, but as you know, we have problems related to heat. We also have problems related to nutrient loading into Biscayne Bay. And so those are also issues that, that need to be addressed because uh, temperature is really just sort of a catalyst in affecting a lot of these problems that already exist, uh, whether it's nutrient related or uh, problems with algae growth. Uh, temperature just exacerbates the issues around that. A lot of it has to do with oxygen. A lot of it has to do with uh, the physiology and the metabolism of these organisms. So uh, it, it's temperature itself doesn't necessarily kill. It's it's all these other surrounding circumstances in our coastal bays and estuaries. Yeah, I'm wondering how how extreme. Or, or how large this problem is. I mean, do you have colleagues in, in the Virgin Islands who are documenting the same type of conditions, say, around Virgin Islands National Park, Buck Island Reef? I, I don't in the Virgin Islands, but I, I know that, you know, I've got colleagues that, that work in terrestrial ecosystems in Arizona, 
they're experiencing the same types of problems. Uh, I've got colleagues in the upper Gulf of Mexico. Uh, they're experiencing similar problems. Uh, and again, it's not just heat. It's the combination of heat and nutrient loading or reductions in freshwater flow that are uh, affecting those ecosystems. Do those problems creep ashore, so to speak? I mean, you, you, you've seen the die-offs of the grasses, the seagrasses in Florida Bay. What about the mangroves, those, that last stand, so to speak, uh, on the, the shoreline buffer? The short answer is exactly. Um, we've seen uh, in, in recent years, I talked about the seagrass die-off we saw in, in 2015. Um, that also was so extreme, we saw mangroves dying because the salinity was so high. And again, temperature does play a role in the recovery of those mangroves that die back. And a good example is after Hurricane Irma, uh, we saw a pretty substantial area of mangrove around Flamingo that, that has since yet to recover. And in fact, Hurricane Ian knocked many of those snags down. And those soils, uh, highly organic mangrove soils, could support new mangrove growth. But in some areas, those soils are breaking down and collapsing. Uh, in other areas, the soils are accumulating so much toxic hydrogen sulfide, and the heat plays a role in that as well, uh, that you're not able to get new mangrove regrowth. So our concern is that some of these areas where we've lost mangroves, we may never get them back. Uh, we can see those areas collapse into open water embayments uh, into the future. So, Steve, I'm wondering, you know, obviously this summer, hopefully it's an anomaly. But but say looking back over the, the past two decades, I mean, can we say it's an anomaly? I, I mean, in the, the, the West, we're seeing longer shoulder seasons crop up as winters get shorter. And so there's, you know, related impacts associated with that. Are you seeing longer periods of these really hot water spells or is this just an anomaly that hopefully it's a one-off? I think this year, based on what I'm seeing, uh, is is kind of a, a shifting baseline. Uh, it's it's Obviously, an extremely hot year. It's we're, we're breaking records all over the place. It's likely that the next year or two will be a little bit cooler. Uh, but I think we're we're clearly on a long-term trajectory with regard to climate change. Um, I ascribe, as a scientist, I ascribe to the science and and the experts in this area say very clearly that. The, the heat that we're experiencing this year is largely related to climate change, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, there might be some fraction of that that is attributable to the strong El Nino conditions that are uh, developing. And therefore, as that El Nino subsides, it might be a little bit cooler next year, or the following year. Uh, but I think what we're seeing is this upward trajectory of warming um, that isn't sort of perfectly linear over time, as with anything, it goes through these spurts and retreats. Uh, we see the same thing with sea level rise. We go back a few years ago, we saw a significant jump in sea levels and that relaxed a little bit. Um, it's a very complicated interaction of factors that's at play, but I think we're just continuing on that upward trajectory. 
That's Dr. Steve Davis, the Chief Science Officer for the Everglades Foundation. Steve, thanks for making time today to, to visit with us about the, the ocean conditions and what's happening. I think uh, we'll try and check in four or five months down the road to see um, how things have uh, turned out. Great. Thanks, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to explore official wilderness and potential wilderness in the National Park System with George Nickus and Dana Johnson from the advocacy group Wilderness Watch. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rebenjack. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.